0: Hello. Welcome to DISCUS, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science, where we bring you interviews with researchers and clinical leaders in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. I'm Rachel Tappan. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Emily Fox and Dr. Kate Chafka who are authors on an upcoming paper in the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy, along with Dave Fuller and Geneva Tanuzi. This paper is titled, Diaphragm Pacing and a Model for Respiratory Rehabilitation After Spinal Cord Injury. Dr. Fox is research associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at University of Florida. She's also director of neuromuscular research at the Brooks Clinical Research Center and director of the Brooks Motion Analysis Center. Welcome Emily Fox.
1: Thank you for having me, Rachel.
0: Absolutely. And Dr. Chavka is a board certified specialist in neurologic physical therapy and clinician scientist with the Brooks Rehabilitation Clinical Research Center. In her role as a clinician scientist there, she assists with the development and implementation of studies within the neurological research program. Welcome, Kate Chavka. Thanks. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. Um, So before we talk about diaphragm piecing, I'd like to start with a conversation about the role of respiratory rehabilitation in spinal cord injury rehab. In the research literature and in the clinic, it seems to take a backseat to other rehabilitation targets like walking. Um, and personally, I'm glad we've got the opportunity to highlight it here today. So, Emily, will you talk about why respiratory rehabilitation is important?
1: Sure. So thank you for the question. And um, before I begin, just want to thank you for the opportunity to talk today and just highlight the many individuals that are involved in this work and all the contributors. And also just emphasize that our experience with diaphragm pacing and our model of um, respiratory rehabilitation and recovery is really based on a lot of collective experience. So I'm glad to start big picture with the emphasis on respiratory rehabilitation because I think what you highlight is that it really needs to be in the driver's seat of our rehabilitation efforts. And the number one reason for that is that the data are really pointing us in that direction. Um, The evidence is clear that we're not sufficiently addressing the needs of those with spinal cord injury that, you know, depending on the level of injury and their impairment, oftentimes, you know, muscles of inspiration and expiration are affected after injury. This sets the individual up for lifelong respiratory impairment, Recurrent infection. This can lead to um, sepsis, rehospitalization, and you know, respiratory infection remains a leading cause of death. So, so the data are telling us that we're not sufficiently addressing this, and not addressing it over the long term for the needs of the individual. And I'm emphasizing long term because, you know, individuals have a a damaged nervous system. And so there's potentially long-term impairments that are going to affect their breathing going forward. And so we need to put that emphasis and really facilitate and help them manage that so that um, they can achieve lifelong wellness and healthy life going forward. One other point I guess I'd like to make is that I think the reason, as you suggest, it, it, this can be uh, in the backseat, if you will, is because the impairments aren't fully obvious. Um, you know, they're not fully obvious sometimes to the individual with spinal cord injury or the clinician, unless we explicitly assess these things, especially when an individual is healthy, they may not realize their decrements and functioning. And it's not till we assess that that they realize that. And then when illness happens or infection, then the individual doesn't have sufficient um, airway clearance ability, cough ability, ability to take a deep breath, and then that cascades downwards into a, a very severe infection.
0: Yeah, you've highlighted really nicely about how I think in spinal cord injury rehab, there's things like walking are really it's like right there front and center because it's the short-term need, but looking at the person's long-term well-being, it's and and life, it's it's pretty darn important, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Our our colleagues always say, you know, um, Without, without breath, there isn't life. So, um, you know, that's one point. I think the other point is that, again, the walking impairment, the reaching impairment, the hand impairment, we can visibly see those. And the respiratory impairment sometimes just isn't as obvious. So I think it's not at the forefront.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Now, Kate, in, in this paper, you present a model for respiratory rehabilitation in spinal cord injury rehab that you're currently using at Brooks Rehabilitation. Will you tell us about this model? Sure, yeah. So
2: the respiratory rehabilitation and recovery model that we outline in the paper um, focuses on achieving two kind of overarching and interconnected goals. So one of those is The recovery of respiratory function and breathing independence. And the other is promotion of lifelong respiratory health, kind of like what Emily was just talking about. Um, there are four overlapping components to the model that work synergistically to achieve those goals. So kind of think about a Venn diagram with four different circles, kind of all overlapping. Um, the first is the interdisciplinary team. So, um, That's kind of really a necessity, not only to manage the increased medical needs that these patients typically have, but also to collaborate to meet common goals related to respiratory independence and recovery. The second is uh, training and treatment, so specifically respiratory strength training, which is an established approach to address respiratory impairment after spinal cord injury. Um, Third, we have the quantitative measurements. So... Um, It's kind of an essential component in assessing pulmonary function, monitoring patient progress, uh, setting those patient-specific goals in response to respiratory rehabilitation, but it can also be useful in guiding education needs and a home exercise plan development and just identifying potential discharge or community needs that that person might, might have from a respiratory standpoint. Um, Finally, there's the incorporation of adjunctive approaches. So for individuals that have a diaphragm pacer, that stimulation of the diaphragm can potentially be used similar to other forms of functional electrical stimulation, which is commonly used in combination with activity-based training for many other functions following spinal cord injury. So that might be the walking and the reaching Um, So it seems reasonable that we would apply that same idea to the respiratory system. Um, To take that a step further, uh, as other areas of research regarding approaches that might help promote neuroplasticity or recovery grow, so maybe, for example, intermittent hypoxia or transcutaneous stimulation, um, there's potential for those to be incorporated as adjuncts and kind of become additional tools in our respiratory rehabilitation toolbox in the future.
0: Well, Gee whiz, Kate! You've also just tied back to some of the previous episodes of Discus as well. How terrific is that? So you mentioned intermittent hypoxia. We had an episode talking about that, as well as transcutaneous stimulation and so on. So any any listeners, if you're thinking, wait, what are those? Go on back. Listen from the beginning. So this is I love how this is pulling a lot of things all together into one model. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> for that segue to other episodes, amazing. <laughs> um, and then, and so, Kate, we'll, we'll stick with you for a little bit here. So, in in the paper, um, you talk about the role that strength training for the muscles of inspiration and expiration can and should play within spinal cord injury, and and, um, and actually, you mentioned that a, a little bit earlier in your, your previous answer there too. And then you compare that that muscle training to the limb muscle training that is just ubiquitous in physical rehabilitation. Um, Will you talk about, you know, what types of training are available for uh, the respiratory muscles and what does that actually look like in a session?
2: Okay. Yeah. So, um, so typically respiratory strength training is performed with threshold or resistance trainers, and those are compact handheld devices that are pretty easy to adjust. And the goal is to target muscles of respiration using similar exercise prescription principles that we would use really for any other skeletal muscle. Um, So what we typically do is repeated sets for both inspiratory and expiratory training. And we try to ensure that it's being performed at sufficient intensity. So around 70 to 80% of that individual's maximal ability, which the literature supports is kind of necessary to see the benefits of that type of training and then we are consistently progressing based on changes in that participant or uh, patients performance. The beauty of respiratory strength training is that it's relatively easy to perform and incorporate in almost any setting. Um, So you can teach patients to perform it independently, you can do it in group settings, you can also just incorporate it into your other therapeutic interventions. So maybe you have Um, Someone on a tilt table or in a standing frame where you're working on sitting balance at the edge of a mat or in long sitting and um, kind of throwing in some respiratory strength training in these different positions as well to add an additional challenge. I think what it looks like very much depends on the individual that's doing the respiratory strength training and the environment that it's being performed in. Um, But essentially, it's adaptable to fit in almost anywhere for anyone. Um, And I think that while we've progressed and incorporated respiratory strength training a little more now maybe than we have previously. Um, I, th- I think there's still some room to grow and especially in those areas where maybe it's not a focus as much, um, especially in incorporating it into those areas of um, ongoing wellness or lifelong management.
0: And so, Kate, actually, you're, you're reminding me of a patient that I saw just the other day. So, I, my clinical practice is in an outpatient setting, and I work with people with more chronic um, spinal cord injury. And so, I was actually doing some inspiratory muscle training with this patient. And so, he has his device and he's learned how to use it. And he said, Well, so could I do this while I watch TV? Yes. You can do this while you watch TV, and I think I might have had a win for the <laughs> this whole exercise program. You know, yeah. I'll find out next time when he comes back and tells me all about how he's <laughs> been following through. So,
2: well, and honestly, I'll, I'll add this. You know, I've so I worked in outpatient uh, spinal cord injury rehab as well, and I've had patients come in and I'll say, you know, are you doing any respiratory rehabilitation? Are you doing any muscle training for breathing? And say, well, I have this device they gave me. But I don't really know what to do with it. And so just the fact that um, people have accessibility to it and don't even realize like I don't even know how to how to go about this. So and a lot of times just making it easy and incorporating it into into anything. I mean it's it's really not hard to do. <laughs> it's just about getting them to do it. So I hope I hope he takes those commercial breaks and gets to work on it.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, right on. So, um, so Emily, I'd like to ask you a question um, going back to that, that model for respiratory rehabilitation that you all have proposed. And so one of the components of that model was quantitative measurement. And so in the paper, you mention and define some specific measurements that are very familiar to folks working in the pulmonary realm, so forced vital capacity, FEV1, maximal inspiratory pressures, maximal expiratory pressures. Will you talk in general or, or about how measuring these different aspects of breathing, so different just and for anyone who isn't remembering those those measures from PT school, you know these are measures of capacity, flow, strength. Um, you know, how should those measures influence your clinical decision making during respiratory rehabilitation activities such as respiratory strength training?
1: Sure. Um, great question. Um, quantitative assessment. Like all of our other areas of PT practice, really informs and is the basis of our decision making. So, this is really what we're about. And in our view, there's absolutely no reason that quantitative assessment of respiratory functioning can't or shouldn't be applied in our PT practice. And, you know, we're really seeing our professional practice move in this direction where there's an emphasis on standardization of measurement and um, really using those metrics to guide our practice and that's essentially what we're suggesting. The uh, measurement tools are relatively low cost and are available and there's also established guidelines from authorities such as the American Thoracic Society to guide this process. Um, further, there are established predictive normative values, and this can be really valuable, just like our other normative values, to help us give us a comparison and really a metric of recovery, because that's what we want to emphasize: is how do we get this person back to healthy functioning to the extent possible? Um, with regard to the measures, you know, you highlighted um, some of the ones that we suggest and. These are really some of the very common measures based upon the volume of air that an individual can move in their lungs, how that air is flowing, and then their pressure generation. Um, And these measures can tell us a couple things. Uh, Firstly, they help us really understand the degree of impairment that the individual has. And this can also guide us in understanding how they may be susceptible to um, infection or pneumonia. There's literature suggesting the association of some of these key measures, such as maximal inspiratory pressure, um, with the likelihood or susceptibility for these infections. As with our other types of measures in physical therapy practice, you know, it really helps us gauge not only where the individual is functioning, but how they are progressing. How are we advancing their training? How are we truly helping them achieve that goal of recovery and lifelong wellness and health? Um, It also lets us know when things are going off track. I think just like our other measures, um, these things should be incorporated into our practice.
0: Gosh, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Little measurement goes a long way, doesn't it?
1: And I, I fully agree. And these are, you know, some of our listeners might not be familiar with these measures, but they're relatively simple to perform. And as I stated, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of guidelines and information out there that can be readily applied to our practice.
0: Absolutely. Well, and, you know, now let's finally get to diaphragm pacing. Um, So just to make sure that everyone listening has got the idea of what we're talking about, Emily, will you tell us what is diaphragm pacing?
1: Sure. So this is essentially rhythmic stimulation of the diaphragm fairly straightforward. So there's different strategies for stimulating the diaphragm. Um, The way that we're most familiar involves laparoscopic placement of wires or electrodes into the diaphragm. You know, often in our typical practice, we might use surface electrodes, but instead these are wires, you know, inserted through the chest wall and kind of threaded into the diaphragm. Two wires in each hemidiaphragm inserted near the motor point or the insertion of the phrenic nerve. And then these wires are externalized through the chest wall, through a small port, and attached to a pulse generator. And and like I said, there's different types of stimulation approaches. Stimulation generally delivers a rate of stimulation typical of breathing, so often 14 to 18 breaths per minute. And then there's different types of intensity or different parameters, like we said, or other types of stimulation measures. And a couple points about diaphragm pacing, it is well-established for those who have chronic spinal cord injury and it's largely been used to help those individuals who are reliant on mechanical ventilation wean off mechanical ventilation or become less reliant and our paper really addresses a new approach Of um, implantation of this system more acutely or sooner after injury. And this is really done, again, to facilitate weaning in that early stage, weaning from mechanical ventilation in the early stage, help individuals from a medical standpoint transition out of ICU and progress to rehabilitation. Some couple additional points is to be clear our role as PTs, clinicians, and researchers has not been in deciding who receives this strategy. Um, The decision to implant the device is typically occurring a few weeks after injury, and that is really involving the ICU trauma surgical team. Um, But now we're seeing individuals come into rehabilitation with this device, and we're seeing this as an opportunity that the state of focus has been on um, using this strategy to wean off mechanical ventilation. And we're suggesting that there's an opportunity, a change in perspective that individuals have this device, let's maximize its use as a tool and potentially um, use it as part of our rehabilitation.
0: Well, and so Emily, can you then talk a bit more about that? That's really exciting. I mean, it's exciting in the first place of just anything that can help somebody wean off of mechanical ventilation, right? But then thinking about then how can we capitalize on that and make it part of the rehabilitation process too is is um, my gosh, I already said it. Really exciting. (laughs) Um, Will you talk, Emily? Will you talk about then how the diaphragm pacing piece can fit into rehabilitation? Sure. You know, we like
1: to think of it as a rehabilitation tool that individuals are coming into rehabilitation um, after receiving this device in the acute care setting. And our group has worked with these individuals um, over the past several years, and you know, really observing it clinically, and then also studying it from a research perspective, and we have two suggestions and hypotheses about you know how this may be working. Is firstly, um, similar to other forms of skeletal muscle stimulation, is that stimulating the diaphragm um, may be beneficial for the health of the um, diaphragm muscle itself, that there's beneficial effects on the myofibrils and, and strengthening that system and ultimately preventing atrophy. Um, and we're working on evidence you know, to support that hypothesis. Our second working hypothesis is that the robust contractions induced by the diaphragm stimulation may have a neuroplastic effect so that those contractions stimulate sensory afferents back to the phrenic system, the respiratory system, and promote plasticity. And we're in the process of of really testing these hypotheses through our ongoing research, but then also working clinically to evaluate some of these things um, as well.
0: That's great. And so, Kate, will you talk about what does respiratory strength training look like? when you are working with somebody who also is using diaphragm pacing to breathe?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, Honestly, it's it's not much different than what I previously described. So I think the biggest thing to remember is that the reason that an individual might have a diaphragm pacer is that they had some level of Impairment. Oftentimes, it's it's a relatively severe degree of impairment after their injury. But just as other patients, they have a tremendous capacity for plasticity and recovery in their respiratory system. So these are exactly the individuals that we want and need to work with to try to make improvements and gains in respiratory function. So some specific considerations for the diaphragm pacer that might be helpful. Um, that while the diaphragm pacer stimulates the diaphragm at a predictable and like rhythmic rate, kind of what uh, Emily was just describing, that individual typically can still entrain with it. Oftentimes what we've seen is individuals can breathe over the set pacer rate if necessary. Um, So it's not, it's not necessary something that would impede the ability to do something like respiratory strength training. Um, It's natural for a patient to potentially do that later on top of Um, their diaphragm pacer. That being said, um, you may need to time repetitions with contraction or really just kind of allowing that individual using the pacer to time their training with the comfortable pattern that they've developed in response to the pacer. So it might take a little bit of just kind of letting them figure out how they're going to do their respiratory strength training, but you can still easily incorporate it. But ultimately, our goals for the respiratory recovery model still apply. So striving to help those individuals achieve that maximal independence, which for these patients might even mean recovery of breathing without the PACER if they get to that point. So that's pretty exciting.
0: That is exciting. And gosh, as you're talking about it, it sounds just very again, very similar to what we would do with a limb muscle, say, um, you know, if I was going to use electric stimulation to help with strengthening for the tibialis anterior during gait. I would do a lot of the same things with, and so then with the diaphragm pacing, just including consideration of the timing of things in with that as well. Do I have that right?
2: Yeah. 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 I mean, exactly. So, I mean, if you're thinking about trying to get the most bang for your buck, I guess to say, I mean, that might be a way you approach it or that you need to approach it. And then also the benefit of doing it that way is it minimizes like a discordant type of pattern where maybe that patient is going to do their big maximal effort, um, you know, repetition and then their pacer fires at a different time. So it's also just beneficial from a comfort level, I think. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely doable. It makes me feel like it's so simple. Why, why haven't we, why wouldn't we do this?
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> good. That's kind of what I was thinking too. Like, (laughs) gosh, this is right. And, and we, we wouldn't just do electric stimulation alone. We would add strengthening to that. Why wouldn't we do the same for the diet for a muscle so important as the diaphragm? So beautifully set. Anyway, now I'll step off my soapbox. Yeah. Well, and so you, you've both talked a bit already about, um, or referred to how, you know, currently in diaphragm pacing, there's a set pace, for instance, or set frequency, um, for instance, there's set parameters. Um, and in the paper you mentioned that there's some systems in development that would have um, variable stimulation parameters. Emily, will you talk about what types of systems are in development and you know what stimulation schemes would you most like to see come out of that work?
1: Sure, I think there are two questions kind of within this you know, first in terms of the set parameters. So I think what can often occur is because the PACER is established potentially in acute care and then the individual transitions into rehab with this device. There may not be a reassessment of the stimulation parameters. So in that time frame, we we often see that the the patient is changing quite a lot in that time frame. So their needs and comfort level with the device may also change. And so I think we should ask, you know, are we readjusting the parameters? And adjusting it first to ensure um, comfort and appropriate use by that patient. Are we meeting the individual's respiratory needs? And and then I think you know a direction that we're trying to go with our research and thinking is how do we optimize these parameters and and change them to, as Kate said, get the most bang for our buck and really use it to the best degree potential um, as a tool. So that's kind of one piece I think. Um, the second, in terms of, you know, variable stimulation and um, new systems being developed, uh, from what we've seen, the majority of current systems are open loop. So the parameters are set and they deliver those set parameters um, to the individual but they don't adapt to the individual's needs on a breath-by-breath or time period basis. So imagine that an individual is exercising or has higher respiratory demand. Well, the device doesn't adapt for that, or if they become ill and need greater support or something like that. So we think uh, the development of a closed-loop system that responds to the respiratory demands would be really valuable. And I know there's a number of groups who are developing that it's been developed in a um, RAP model. Um, There's other different types of stimulation devices as well that maybe are being used for short-term. And I, I think that's a potential for our spinal cord injury community. And these are areas that you know we're actively pursuing in our research, especially to understand the impact of this skeletal muscle stimulation in in the respiratory system.
0: That's uh, that's exciting stuff. Well, so Emily and Kate, what I'm hearing through our full conversation here is that really you're suggesting a paradigm shift in in how we view diaphragm pacing and really respiratory rehabilitation. Um, in general for uh, people with spinal cord injury will you talk about um, the role that you think respiratory rehabilitation in addition to diaphragm pacing should play in spinal cord injury rehab for for people who need mechanical ventilation and also for people who don't
2: yeah so I'll, I'll uh, go first I think what we've tried to highlight is that you know I think after spinal cord injury people early on living with spinal cord injury but also, potentially throughout the rest of their life, may be at an increased risk of respiratory issues related to respiratory impairment. And um, that may be really evident with individuals on mechanical ventilation or maybe utilizing DP, but it may be even less evident for those individuals that maybe didn't have those experiences in their rehabilitation journey. So I think diaphragm pacing may just be that starting point to a broader conversation of how we can consider adjuncts to respiratory rehabilitation, interventions that maximize recovery and and really impact that lifelong respiratory health after spinal cord injury. Our experience with diaphragm pacing has really shifted our focus and trying to realize the importance and need for respiratory rehabilitation for our patients. And recognize, too, that there's room for growth, hence why we've tried to implement changes in our clinical practice and really start trying to research some of the things that we think might be impactful in that lens.
1: I think a a couple of key points in what you've just said, Kate, is, and and Rachel, how you asked the question, you know, for those who might require support of a device like a mechanical ventilator or diaphragm pacer, But also for those who may not have such a severe injury is, you know, number one, we want to put respiratory rehabilitation in the front seat of our rehabilitation efforts. You know, just to circle back to where we started this conversation, we want to put it front and center and use the data that our model systems and others are collecting that tells us that this is an ongoing problem for health, quality of life wellness and and how people live their lives with spinal cord injury so that this really needs our attention and and then to evaluate you know how is this impairment affecting those with the severest of injuries and if diaphragm electrodes are already in place how can we use this to a better extent and you know what i've loved hearing throughout this conversation is There's so much that we're already doing in our rehabilitation approaches that just need to be translated to our efforts in respiratory rehabilitation. And even in our use of diaphragm stimulation, um, that we're suggesting a paradigm shift in our lens and how we view these things, but the tools and approaches and the framework is right at our fingertips because it's already what we do in our practice. So I think there's a real opportunity for um, some tremendous growth in this area, and to to really make a difference and improve the health of individuals with spinal cord injury.
0: Well, gosh. Thanks for this conversation. I, I, you know, as I'm reflecting then on our full conversation, I'm really left feeling like yes, we need this big shift in our focus, but at the same time, we can do this. We have all of the pieces. This isn't such an enormous deviation from the things that we already know that are already our bread and butter in spinal cord injury rehab. Like I, I'm feeling really hopeful that we've we got this.
1: Absolutely, this is within our reach, and each of us as rehabilitation professionals can absolutely make a difference and also empower our patients to take it upon themselves to make this part of their lifelong journey and improve health and wellness
0: here here Well, Dr. Fox and Dr. Chavka, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to have had this opportunity to highlight work related to ventilation after spinal cord injury. It's an important topic that I I'd love to see PTs talking about more. So thank you for doing this important work. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rachel. And that's the end of our chat for today. If you'd like to hear more spinal cord injury rehab related content, I've got a recommendation for you besides the other episodes of Discus, of course, check out the Vestibular Special Interest Group's recent podcast episode where Maureen Clancy and Nikki DiSalvio discuss a case of an acute rehabilitation patient with spinal cord injury and BPPV. So you can find that by going to neuropt.org and navigating to the Vestibular Special Interest Group's page. And thanks to you, Discus listeners, for tuning in. Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science is a podcast from the Spinal Cord Injury Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of the American Physical Therapy Association. Ethan Stoller edited this episode and composed the theme music, and I'm Rachel Tappan, your host. Until next time.